Well, good morning again, church. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me again to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you're a guest with us, as I see new faces this morning, we've been in a study of 1 Peter since we planted last August, and today we find ourselves working verse by verse, and we're in chapter 4, looking at a larger portion of text this morning than we're normally used to, verses 12 through 16. These seem to be bracketed together as one idea, which is why we're taking them all in turn. So if you'll read with me from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, I'll read verses 12 through 19, but we'll be looking at only 12 through 16 this morning, and then I'll ask God's blessing on our time. Thus says the Holy Spirit, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We treasure it, though we would admit to you, not as we should. We pray that this morning, as we continue in worship looking at your word, that it would be used of your spirit, this preaching hour, to help us fall more in love with the word of God. That we would see its instructions for us, for how we can live holy lives, blameless, righteous, and upright before you. This is only possible by your Spirit and us understanding and growing in Christ's likeness only comes by your Spirit. And that chiefly from the Word of God and principally above that, Father, us seeing in the Word of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Would you please open our eyes this morning to see our suffering and now glorified Savior. He suffered for our sins and now He sits at the right hand of the Father. Give us the ability to see Christ this morning that we might be like Him. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, beloved, when you came in this morning, it's likely that you grabbed a bulletin, and that's good. I want you to think with me for just a minute about something that's probably a little obvious. What is a bulletin for? Yes, it does give you the lyrics for this morning's songs, which keeps us from having to set a projector up each week. Some people use their bulletins to take notes. You can take your bulletin home and use it throughout the week as part of your family's discipleship training, and the elders hope that you might do that. The primary purpose of this trifolded piece of paper, though, is liturgical. It's liturgical. That is to say that it orders our worship each Lord's Day towards the triune God, telling us what we should do and how we are to do it together. The word liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia, which means work for the people. I'd be willing to bet that almost nobody here today had considered what you're here to do on the Lord's Day as work or your job or as your Christian duty. But this is in fact what it is. Worship is work. Have you thought about the fact that each Sunday you come to a worship service? Who's doing the service? We are. American Christianity and evangelism have made the service all about us being served. The work is for our sakes. The job is performed before us so that we can come and be entertained. But this is not the way that the Bible actually talks. You're familiar with Paul's liturgical response to the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in Romans chapter 12. After 11 chapters of theological glory, the truths that hold us to Christ, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present not your voices, but your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service or work of worship. Every Christian has heard and believed the gospel. Every Christian that has heard and believed the gospel and every Christian that responds, responds by bringing a sacrifice to serve in the worship. And that sacrifice is their own body. And this gets us into Peter's instructions for the churches in Asia Minor. This is a side note. In the last few weeks, I've mentioned Peter having addressed his churches in Jerusalem. It's a little bit of a misnomer, and I, I want to make a clarification. I'm sorry for that. Peter's writing at the beginning of the letter, you'll read in chapter 1, to churches in the dispersion in Asia Minor, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, so on and so forth. It's likely that these were people that he pastored in Jerusalem, but when the persecution broke out during Acts, they spread into the dispersion, as Acts records for us. And churches were spread and planted all over Asia Minor. Some scholars have argued that 1 Peter is a liturgy of a church service. Particularly, they think it's a baptismal liturgy for a baptismal service. While I'm not convinced that that's the case, many of the instructions Peter gives throughout the letter function like liturgical reminders 
like cues, notes in your bulletin. Today, we will see that suffering is not a cause for surprise or even shame, but it's your cue to begin to worship. Well, Peter says in the Legacy Standard Version, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Well, if we're thinking in terms of fires, we might ask, what is this fiery trial? Peter speaks of the purose, literally a burning that is going to come upon you. I'll mention briefly, he's not talking about our general trials in life. He's not talking about diseases. He's not talking about hard providences or chronic ailments or physical limitations or financial troubles. We do have instructions throughout the scriptures to rejoice when we suffer things like this. James 1-2 records various kinds of trials. And so we have instructions to rejoice in those moments. But Peter here in chapter 4 verse 12 is talking about a specific set of trials, namely persecution for one's faith. And I'll speak more on this here in just a minute. But the big idea in verse 12 is how we're to handle these trials, what we're to do. He says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Now, Peter's talked about suffering quite a bit at this point. He's mentioned suffering's refining power, how it brings God's favor. It's a better path than sinning. He's mentioned its efficacy in helping us to resist sin. And here he says, suffering also should not surprise you. The church members all over the dispersion were going to stick out like a sore thumb. Because of Christ, because of their fealty to Christ, to King Jesus, they had stopped going to house parties. They became measured in their consumption. They quit cheating on their wives. They did not acknowledge the deity of Caesar anymore or participate in the Roman cult of Caesar. They didn't take selfies anymore next to the statue of Artemis. And Peter rightly anticipates that the world was going to throw shade at them. Now, who's going to be surprised at this? Well, the lost, is, the, the lost will be surprised. Back in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, they, Peter uses the same word. He says, with respect to this, they, that is the lost, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. But Peter says Christians cannot be surprised when suffering comes our way. You all know that Chad and Lisa were missionaries in Asia for a time, and they shared a number of their stories with us about being in Asia. One of the stories that I'm fond of is how they talk about the way that people treated them because they were foreigners. They were the oddballs in town. Uh, they got stared at. They got asked strange questions about what they do uh, with their children or what they feed them or how they dress them. Uh, they were um, asked to take selfies, right? I want a selfie with the white people, okay? Uh, I'm sure the first few times this happened, it was a little odd. But after years of ministry, they said they became accustomed to be, being treated like free public entertainment. Um, they just weren't surprised by it anymore. And Peter would say the same. He'd say, get used to it. He says, it's not strange. That ain't strange. When Tammy was in high school, 
she won a scholarship writing contest held by the NAACP. Yes, that's right. She won a scholarship contest held by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. This is a true story, by the way. She got to go to a banquet celebrating the advancement of colored people where they called her name to come up on stage and she got to receive money for college for the advancement of colored people. (laughs) Poor Tammy. She didn't know she was exercising her white privilege, flexing those colonization muscles. Um, That might seem a little strange to us today, but getting chewed out at the mill or having coffee poured over you for trying to save a baby, or worse, not strange. We should expect it. Now, three brief things to consider from verse 12. Number one, being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ is a good thing. And everyone should say, Amen. Everybody's in agreement here. The problem is that We are bombarded with messages from inside the church nationally and beyond that it's not a good thing to be persecuted for Jesus. The real religious Pharisees of our day, the religious left and the religious center, want us to think that it's bad. You use the word sodomy with that lost person. You're a naughty little boy. Jesus wants us to practice faithful presence. Well, Jesus said, beloved, that we would be hated by a few or a handful or many or a lot. No, Jesus said that we would, if we were living in fealty to him, be hated by all peoples. And he told us that this is a good thing. It is our liturgical cue to start singing. Number two, the normal Christian life involves suffering For Christ, it just does. Again, the words of the Lord Jesus. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The church today is full of men who fear men and not God. They don't uphold His name and honor, but rather sacrifice it on the altar of their own reputation. You say, I don't have opportunities to go out and evangelize or share my faith like some folks do. That may, in some cases, be true. But who did Jesus guarantee almost across the board we would all suffer persecution or enmity from in this life? Our families. Our families. Do you have extended family that you are afraid of speaking to about Christ because of the ramifications that it might bring? Are you afraid that it's going to sever a relationship or destroy gospel opportunities because you say something frank to a family member about their sin? Calvin said, Scripture states the difference between believers and unbelievers to be that unbelievers, as the slaves and inveterate and deep-seated iniquity, only become worse and more obstinate under the lash. Whereas the former, that is believers, like freeborn sons, turn to repentance. Calvin concludes, now therefore, choose your class. We often say at Christ the King that there is no neutral place in the universe. If you're not suffering for Christ, 
Examine yourself. Am I living in faithfulness towards Christ? If you're not, I call you to repent of your cowardice and get right with God. You may be able to avoid fire in this life, but apart from Jesus, you will not avoid it in the next. Lastly, persecution purifies. Standard biblical paranasis, that's a big word for advice or encouragement, is that God tests us through our trials. Let me give you a slew of verses. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. That's from Proverbs 27. Psalm 66 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. James says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The language here is pretty close to what Peter said back in chapter 1, where he said, In this you rejoice, that is our participation with Christ, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How strange that Christians claim to want to be more like Christ, and yet we often spend our time avoiding the means that He uses to accomplish that. We are like the obstinate child who refuses to tell his parents about their toothache. That would mean perhaps one or more visits to the dentist and drills and pain and eventually leading to healing. But instead, the cavity grows and the work to repair it only gets that much harder. By the way, and this is an encouragement towards being purified through the testing, who is doing this fiery trial? Who is performing it? It's your heavenly Father, the supreme emperor, the one who is both omnipotent and omniscient, the God to whom the devil must go, if he is to lift one finger against the bride of Christ. I'm going to ask you a strange question. What is the shield of faith made of? What is the shield of faith made of? What ore of truth is it forged from? What keeps it stout when the flaming darts of the evil one come against us? I tell you, it's the sovereignty of God. It is the sovereignty of Almighty God. Not one test comes against us unless it first passes across the desk of our all-powerful King. We can trust and have faith in every moment because we know that God is in control of each and every one of our situations. Well, Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Nothing strange is happening to you, but, and here he gives a contrast, not this, but this, not surprise, but it's your cue to worship. In Acts chapter 5, Luke records the first physical persecution after the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Having been arrested and threatened with death for preaching the gospel, the apostles faced the decision of the Jewish leaders. And Acts records, After calling the apostles in and beating them, they, that is the Pharisees, commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then 
they released them. So, the apostles went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. The Lord Jesus had prepared these men ahead of time for their own set of fiery trials. They knew what was expected of them. Christ was not a part of their lives, tacked on to one special day each week. Their bodies were what we might call altar-ready. Christians who are prepared don't react, they respond. They don't react, they respond. A reaction is one of those heat-of-the-moment, kind of emotionally driven replies to circumstances in our lives. Whereas a response is a measured and calculated reply that aligns with one's core beliefs. You know that recently, beloved, most of the national news cycle has been taken up with updates over the Texas elementary school shooting. And that's likely to continue for some time. But I bring it up because of how the public handles moments like this. Everyone has to react. Everyone has to give their immediate, vitriolic, high-intensity, sometimes virtue-signaling response just to let everyone know how they feel. And just so we're clear, God hates what happened at Robb Elementary School too. His holiness decries murder as evil, all kind of murder. But God also sees the whole story. He knows that the education provided by these government schools is the exact ideology that leads children to think that they are nothing but meaningless stardust the worldview that would embolden someone to put on body armor and shoot children. What's the Christian response in this moment? Well, I would say pull your kids out of public school and in obedience to God, disciple your family. Pull your kids out of public school. Disciple your own family. But Christians would rather react than respond. It's the reason that church folk, including people even in our church, might react with surprise at suffering rather than respond with praise. We're reading the wrong liturgy. This life is not about you and your wants and your peace and your happiness. Wrong liturgy. That's not the right response. God didn't die so he could wait on your table. It's the other way around. Fixing this is going to take some repentance and mind transformation. Peter said back in chapter 2, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and by His grace and with our eyes on Christ, this we can and will do. John Calvin encourages us this way. Our thought should then be how high the honor which God bestows upon us in distinguishing us by the special badge of His soldiers. Whether therefore in maintaining the truth of God against the lies of Satan or defending the good and innocent against the injuries of the bad, think abortion ministry, 
we are obliged to incur the offense and hatred of the world so as to endanger life, fortune, or honor, then let us not grieve or decline so far to spend ourselves for God. Let us not think ourselves wretched in those things in which He with His own lips pronounced us blessed. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The command to rejoice is a call to choir practice. Peter says, Rejoice that also in the revelation of the glory of Him, you may rejoice being glad. That's an almost literal translation of the Greek. How you prepare for the final denouement, the last glorious day, when Christ will be revealed, and how you will be able to sing then for Him at the top of your lungs, you are training for right now by responding to your persecutions with rejoicing. It's choir practice. That's what it is. Our covenant members know that. In just a few weeks, as Jeremy mentioned in his pastoral prayer, we will all get to go down to the Anderson County Courthouse and hear the reading of and show our support for an abolitionist resolution that will be presented on two separate nights. That's going to be June the 13th and June the 20th. So set your calendars. Um, I'd love for everybody to come if they can. And if you think this is going to fly under the radar and we will be the only ones to show up, that's probably moonshine. We are likely to face opposition and even some slander and maybe worse. Are you practicing your vocal warm-ups like we do at Psalm Sing? Are you readying your voice for that moment when we perhaps could suffer persecution? You know, the ones we go over each month. It wouldn't be a bad idea. Because our praises to God on that last day and while we're at Clinch ministering or at Food City or wherever are us getting ready for the final concert when we will see Jesus face to face. Well, in verse 14, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here, Peter speaks of the lightest of afflictions that may be encountered by his churches as a verbal insult. He goes to the lowest of low persecution, the least of which you might experience to say any kind of Christian persecution is included in what I'm talking about here. Even a verbal insult like trash talk. Christians should have thick skin. I mentioned this last week. Did you know that the Christian church has a history of owning the insults that are thrown at it? The name Christians means little Christs. This is from Acts chapter 11, verse 26. That was likely given to the church as an insult. And today we all call ourselves Christians. That's who we are. Reformers like Luther and Zwingli wanted to see the Catholic church repent and realign with the scriptures. They called themselves reformers. They wanted the church to reform. But as you know, history records, their teachings largely fell on dead ears and they were labeled as Protestants, protesters, those who don't like the church, so they're protesting it. And today we all call ourselves Protestants. Lean into it, thick skin. 
Even a light insult is evidence of the blessings of the presence of God's spirit. Men may insult us verbally, but God has covenanted with us to bless us personally. Peter uses two phrases. He says the spirit of glory and the spirit of God. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God. The spirit of glory is a picture of the cloud which filled the tabernacle and the temple. Think that Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God filling those temples in the Old Testament. God is present with us tangibly in our hour of trial. The Spirit of God is language hearkening back to Isaiah 11, which says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, that is Jesus. In what ways? The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of strength, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah foresees the Spirit empowering Jesus for his earthly ministry. And Peter sees that same blessing extending from Christ to his bride. How did the apostles respond to their persecution in Acts? What did they walk away from the council, from the Sanhedrin? They delighted that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. It's the same language, delight in the fear of the Lord. I understand that the talk of the Spirit may sound a little charismatic to some of you, but this is what Peter's talking about. Most Reformed Christians treat the Spirit of God like a merit badge you get when you're converted. He just proves that you repented. Whether you are a continuationist or a cessationist, or as one brother told me recently, he's cessationish, the Spirit of God is still active today, and He is with us in a special and powerful way in our suffering. However, your suffering for Christ, as you see in verse 14, must be for the name of Christ. Suffering is a part of our liturgy only when it's done in the name of Jesus. This last Friday, Avery Chandler gave the men some helpful information about witnessing to Mormons. Avery is just a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And I'd wager a guess that all of the men, though he shared a lot of different things about evangelizing Mormons, had one big takeaway when it comes to speaking to the LDS. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. That was Avery's main point. Don't be a jerk. Christians often excuse prideful and selfish behavior with a cursory, well, I'm just serving the Lord. Like Uncle Andrew and the magician's nephew, they have one set of rules for themselves and another set of rules for everybody else. You see this kind of behavior in cage stagers or the young, restless, and reformed. These are Christians who get spoiled over the doctrines of grace, and as a result, they don't have much grace for anybody else. They use good theology as an excuse to be disrespectful and even disobedient to their own parents and other authorities. They find strength in the force of their words and in their own estimation of themselves. You can also see this kind of behavior in churches like ours 
where there is a real zeal for the truth and for evangelism, and at the same time, all those other churches are just a hive of unbelievers. Paul Washer once said, I do not find much joy in simple morality or in trying to rise above my church culture. He said, I find joy in the face of Jesus Christ. Is Christ really what your life is about, beloved? Is He king? Is He holy above all? Is He a weapon? Or is He your reward? There may be someone sitting here today that wants salvation in the Christian culture. Like a moth to a candle, you've been attracted to some aspect of the church's moral virtue. But I must ask you, what are you going to do about Jesus Christ? We won't shuffle into heaven in a big crowd where you look at everyone else and act like everyone else and God doesn't pay much attention to who's a sheep or a goat. It won't work that way. You will have to answer the question, what did I do with Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a scandal for one reason only, and that is the direct object, the. The reason that we get picked on and persecuted and we suffer in the culture, in the day, in the age in which we do is because we say the. We could go to the sidewalk and say Christ is a way. We could say He's one way. But we suffer persecution because we say He is the way. There is no other. Jesus is the only way. And if you're here today and you have tried to deal with your sin problem in any other way other than going through Christ, your sin remains. You still carry it. And you will carry it to your grave unless... You deal with Christ. Jesus is the only way. Some people, thinking of Christ, have trouble laying hold of Him because it seems impossible to put their faith in Christ or to believe that they have put their faith in Christ. I'll encourage you with one illustration. It's probably meant more to me than any other on the grounds of assurance. Whether or not you can be saved has almost nothing to do with your strength and has everything to do with the strength of Christ. It has everything to do with the strength of Christ. Think about it like a bridge. If you walk across a bridge, what really makes the difference? The strength of the person doing the walking or the strength of the bridge? Of course, it's the strength of the bridge. We can take a bodybuilder and have him walk across one of these rope bridges in the jungles of Africa somewhere. He may be as strong as any man. There's a good chance he won't make it across that bridge. But the weakest sinner who endeavors to crawl towards Christ, though they make it slowly, will make it to heaven if they go through Christ because Christ is a very strong bridge and he is able to cover the gap between us and God the Father.
Peter says, there are some things that you shouldn't suffer for. In verse 15, he gives us a brief vice list, and this is by no means exhaustive. But I want you to notice three things about verse 15. It says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. The list, I would say, first of all, seems to progress from the most severe kinds of sin to the least severe. Murder, thievery, evil doing, which is a pretty generic term for doing wrong, and then meddling, which is essentially a busybody. His purpose is to teach his churches that we should not suffer for any sin, whether it is the greatest of sins we can imagine or the least. You can imagine all four being possible fiery trials that Peter's churches might also face. Some of their members could and would likely be murdered. Some would have their possessions taken. Some would have evil done to them. Some would have outsiders nosing around in their business. Second thing I want you to notice is what command, what he commands his churches should not suffer for. What he says, don't suffer for these sins. Why does he say these four sins one should not suffer for? Because he expects his churches to be tempted to fall for all of these traps. Dear husband, this just in. Your wife was beaten and sexually abused by a group of men while trying to minister on the sidewalk outside of the local abortion mill. Your comments. Now, every man in here just got a little frustrated. Okay? That ain't right. I'm not going to let that slide. Would the early church have been tempted to return evil for evil? To murder? You bet. What about committing thievery to get the stuff that was stolen from them while they were at church on Sunday morning? Yes. Well, that's not thievery, Chris. They were just taking back what was already theirs. That may be true, but we all know how that's going to get spun. Evil doing comes from sliding back into those old patterns of living, which Peter says should only come back to us in the form of slander from the Gentiles. That's from chapter 2, verse 11. The last thing I want to discuss with you is why the word meddler made the list. This is a really long Greek word, alat reipiskopos. Alat reipiskopos. It's from two words, which means overseeing another man. It seems fairly harmless, though Paul warns Timothy and the Thessalonian church about people who are busybodies. These are lazy people. They have nothing better to do with their time than go about from house to house meddling in other people's business. By contrast, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. In other words, we're to belong to another kingdom. As the king's men, we should be about the king's business. Unfortunately, we live in an age when you can be a meddler and never get up off your sofa. Briefly, can I ask you to consider your online diet? Are you meddling? Are you a digital busybody? Do you get anxious if you don't have your phone in your hand about every 10 minutes? Smartphones are actually designed to make you pick them up about that frequently. They're designed that way. They're not wrong. They're not evil. They're not sinful. They're tools. And a tool can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. By the way, 
You can suffer for meddling, and nobody here at this church will know about it. But remember that God knows, and you and your family over time will experience the side effects of it. On Wednesday, Dustin prayed that the fathers at Christ the King would be devoted to leading their families. If online mischief-making is ruining that, put a stop to it. Tammy and I have a pact that when I get home from work, we both put our phones in a bedroom. And we won't pick them up till the end of the night after the kids are in bed. We try and do that. We try and stick to that rule. It just helps. We're all here. We're all a family. It's dad, mom, and the kids. And it's our time. And that's what we want to be. Well, lastly, Peter gives us one more contrast in verse 16. He says, no shame but worship. No shame but worship. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We started with a contrast. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Peter says something similar here. No shame but worship. Christians should never live in shame because of their work for Christ. But, as Peter said, they should rejoice. Why should we be ashamed of our sufferings when Jesus despised His shame? When Jesus despised the shame that was brought to Him? Those of you who have gone out to evangelize with us know that staying encouraged when you're evangelizing is hard work. Don't expect to hear lots of encouragement. You won't find sexist, misogynistic dinosaur on any motivational posters. But there should be no shame. This kind of persecution is an honor. As Calvin said, it's a special badge of belonging to Christ. I would encourage concluding our time at the mill or in street evangelism with singing. I would encourage us to conclude that time with singing together. Every time. It's liturgy. Remember, we're called to sing and praise God. You might sing Psalm 2 or Psalm 22 or Psalm 110 or A Mighty Fortress is Our God or even Amazing Grace. I mentioned the power of singing last week. In your melancholy moments this week, though you may not be persecuted for Christ or maybe after you've disciplined a child and... It brought sorrow to your heart or after a hard conversation with extended family when you were bold enough to share Christ with them. Sing. Raise your voice. Lift your voice to the Lord. And if you don't know any songs by heart, you've got your bulletin. You've got your liturgy. Whatever you sing, sing about the glorious victory of Jesus Peter says that we're to glorify God in that name, in the name of Jesus. He's referring back to verse 14 where he said, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This morning, while finalizing my outline, I was convicted again by the Spirit that the joy that I lacked this week is directly correlated to the fact that I took little time this week to meditate on the person and work of Christ. Jesus said in John 15, when he spoke of abiding in him, he concluded that by saying, these things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be full, that my joy may be in you. Christ and all of his riches and glory are waiting for us to feed and nourish our souls like uh, Joseph in his vast granaries in Egypt. We read from the text this morning. 
Why wait around until you get hangry? Like Jacob and his sons, get up, humble yourself, and go get grain because Jesus has it in abundance. I'll conclude with some suffering liturgy for you this morning, beloved. These cues that we see in the scripture ought to be a cue to us. Start worshiping. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was delivered over to death for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain of his own body. Lastly, in liturgical format, in Revelation chapter 5, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain, and by your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The sufferings of Christ were not just His worship, but the means by which you and I worship as well. When you came into church this morning, you came into work. You came into a liturgy, the work of the people. But you can only contribute to the service this morning because the real work is already finished. Jesus sits even now as the one whose work is already done. So... Work by worshiping because, as Jesus said, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, again, all of the glories that we experience from cover to cover in your word come through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for this. And we confess to you that it is frequently we do not set our eyes on Christ. Would you remedy this? Would Christ the King be known not just as a church that takes human sexuality and the sanctity of life seriously, not just as a church that takes your word seriously or theology seriously, not just as a church that takes dominion seriously and reforming our society seriously. I ask that Christ the King would be known as a church that takes the person and work of Jesus Christ seriously. And Lord, that we glory in it. Because if we go out to the mill 
or we stand on the sidewalk for ourselves or in an effort to make ourselves better, we'll be persecuted and we'll go home sullen. But because of the work of Christ, because Jesus has opened a way in which we have come and we can invite others. And you've told us ahead of time, we will be persecuted. We can rejoice because the work is finished for us. And so the harvest is ready to be brought in. Enable us by the power of your spirit, by the spirit of glory and the spirit of God to bring in your harvest, Lord, and bring glory to your name while we're doing it. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.